Welcome, everyone. Uh, we are glad that you are here wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith. We are glad that you could come. We want this church to be a, a good place to ask and answer the questions around faith and what it means to know and follow Jesus. This month, we uh, are starting our year off with a small series looking at who we are called to be as a church, and we are trying to figure out who we are called to be by looking at who Jesus was to the people around him. We think that his example will give us a good template for learning to express his love to his city and his culture. And so to do that this day, we are looking at snapshots of Jesus uh, in this series. And today we've got a particular snapshot of Jesus. If you've got a Bible, you can turn it to the 19th chapter of Luke. If you don't and have a bulletin, it's on the back panel of your bulletin, or you can look in a Bible app if you would like. But we are going to read from Luke 19 and to help us with that, Phil. Right. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't mind, we're going to take a moment and pray. Um, Last week when I got to the church, um, I felt a fair amount of vertigo. Got through it last week, uh, but it has come in more moderated form upon me again this morning. And so I want to serve you well, but to do that, I need uh, clarity of mind and the ability to do that. So I'm just going to take a moment now. Pray with me, those of you who are inclined to. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray now that your spirit would help me to speak with clarity and strength and compassion the the words that you want me to say. Help me now in my weakness. Um, Come and be strong and be your love and your clarity. We praise you and thank you for this opportunity to look together. In Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned, we are um, looking at the life of Jesus to figure out snapshots through which we can see principles that we can use to express Christ's love and help understand our call, our mission to our city in our day. This particular snapshot of Jesus and uh, Zacchaeus is near the end of his time on earth. He's traveling to Jerusalem for his final days. He is at a place called Jericho. It's on the eastern border in the Jordan Rift Valley down by the river. He's about to turn west and go to Jerusalem. He's in the final few weeks of his life. And here in this moment with Zacchaeus, Jesus teaches many things. It's a very famous um, little snapshot 
and narrative. But I want to extract two particular principles here because I think they're relevant for us in our particular moment. What this passage shows us, beyond all doubt, is that there is grace for the guilty. Even the most vile, the most evil, the most despised, exploitive, powerful, oppressive person. As I say that, you're probably thinking of people. What comes to my mind is Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein. Hard people to love. But what Jesus wants us to see in this picture with someone just as powerful and exploitive and hated as those I mentioned is that there is grace for even the most guilty. And what I'd like us to see from this narrative is that Jesus teaches us at least two things. Firstly, bring your sin to Jesus, for he will give you grace. Secondly, leave your sin with Jesus, for he will give you freedom. Let's look at those two in turn. Bring your sin to Jesus. Leave your sin with Jesus. Bring your sin. Let's take a moment and remind ourselves where we are here. Jesus has done many miracles. Many people who, uh, like us, would be skeptical of miracles now believe that he really is the Messiah that he claims to be, that he really is the divine son of God, that he really is come to restore Israel and fulfill Jewish prophecies. So there is now a huge crowd accompanying Jesus in his final journey to Jerusalem. And here in that last leg, he's in Jericho, we encounter a man named Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. Now, tax collectors in the days of the Roman Empire had a particular place in society. They were not Romans, they were locals. They were brought from the local vanquished, conquered people, and they were hired to to raise taxes. Their deal was they would give the Romans a sum of money and say, I will promise you X amount of dollars from this group of people you give me to tax. And the winning bidder would then have to provide X amount of dollars. The problem was that winning bidder would then actually extract X plus Y from the people and keep the Y. And since the Y was not prescribed... You could extract as much as you possibly could. You can just see this system is rife for exploitation, gouging, and oppression. And that's exactly what these tax collectors did. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief of tax collectors. He had a cut from every tax collector who gouged the people. He was at the top. He was the apex of the economic predatory chain. Nobody is more deeply entrenched in the pattern of exploitation and gouging financial oppression of the Jewish people than this kind of person. And therefore, he's hated. Hated by his culture the way we hate Jeffrey Epstein, the way we hate Harvey Weinstein. One of the most hated, wealthy, powerful people, the kind that use their power and privilege to abuse others for their own purposes and pleasure, that's him. But his soul is empty because the wealth and all that it has brought him has not made him happy. Scholars tell us that the role of the tax collector was one to be despised by the Romans, kind of a a sleazy local that they needed to get their money and completely resented and hated 
by his own people. The only reason people gravitated toward this role was the money it brought them. Money is the driving force here. This wealth, what he has given his life for, has not brought him what his life needs. His soul is crying out for something deeper. And I want us to stop just for a moment. We were part of the wealthiest generation in one of the wealthiest cities in one of the wealthiest eras of human history. We need to ask, how is wealth satisfying us? Well, I'm not wealthy. Look at all the people above me. Okay, look above you. How is wealth satisfying them? It's not. Because it can't. He is empty. So he turns to see Jesus. He's seeking Jesus. He's trying to get in there. Now he's a wee man, smaller than me, maybe Frodo-like, I don't know, but he's small. And the crowd, and by crowd the narrator means the people following Jesus, these people who claim to be his followers, they won't let him see Jesus. They're taller, so they naturally block him, but they're not letting him in either. They're keeping him out. So on the outside of the scrum, he's blocked. So what does he do? He runs ahead, climbs a sycamore tree, and as Jesus passes, passes by, he can see Jesus. But Jesus is looking for him. It says Jesus looked at him, and he said, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your place. Jesus knew his name. Jesus knew him. Scholars are not exactly sure if he knew him just because he happened to recognize him or if he'd chosen and planned this moment to seek him out. But his cryptic comment that I must stay at your house today indicates pre-planning. As the divine son of God, Jesus was deliberately setting up this moment for him, Zacchaeus, and the crowd and for us. Zacchaeus seemed to be seeking Jesus. But actually, it was Jesus seeking Zacchaeus the whole time. A number of implications I want us to marinate on. Firstly, if you're here and you're curious about the Christian faith or you've become a Christian, your own understanding of what's happened is that you began seeking answers or you sought God. But what the gospel says is when we think we're seeking God, he's actually the one who's been seeking us. I found this out myself in my own story because after I graduated from undergrad and moved on to my next degree, I began seeking answers. In in my undergrad, I'd been very involved in, in the kind of the progressive social justice activistic world, but I found it fairly empty. And then I got to law school and I suddenly noticed that uh, my locker partner was a Christian. That made me ask some questions. And then uh, I met a bunch of people in my study group and five of the 12 were Christians. And that was really unusual. I'd never met Christians before that I knew of. And then I met a a girl I kind of fell in love with and found out she was a Christian. And so uh, in, in all of this, I was seeking answers, I thought. But at the end of the day, when I looked back on it, I'd become surrounded. Because God had been seeking me first, and he knew I would be asking questions, and he was ready. You see, Jesus knew you before you were born. Jesus, before the foundation of the earth, thought about you. And if you're here and you're seeking answers, it's quite possible 
that he's seeking you more than you're seeking him. Secondly, when we look at Jesus eating at the homeless Zacchaeus, we need to understand what this moment means. Because to eat, to accept hospitality had real consequences and real implications for that day. Jesus was saying, this man is worthy of my time and my care and my compassion. I will dine with him. I will act as a friend and a guest to him. I will honor him by letting him honor me. The crowd grumbles. They don't think this man is worthy, morally speaking. This is a predator economically. And Jesus is going into this home because Jesus is saying to his crowd and to us, his crowd today, that there are no barriers to his love. There's no one outside the reach of his grace, outside the radius of his mercy. We have difficulty with that. In our justice-conscious age, we have a lot of trouble giving wealthy, exploitive people any room for grace. We want to clobber them. I would have trouble if I heard Harvey Weinstein had suddenly accepted God's grace. I, I think I really would, and so would most of us. You see, we judge where he doesn't, and we don't judge where he does. You see, the fault line of the kingdom of Jesus, the line between who's in and who's out, between who's worthy and who's not, it's not between races, it's not between social classes, it's not between the oppressors and the oppressed. That's not how in and out are measured in God's eyes. The fault line runs through every human heart. It's those who know they are guilty and need grace from Jesus that are in. And those who don't acknowledge that they're guilty and don't think they need his grace who are out. And I'm here to tell you, we all need his grace. I don't care how moral you are or how progressive or enlightened you are. This crowd is self-righteously angry that Jesus would do this and they show the moral darkness and self-absorption in them. Because when Jesus is arrested, what happens to that crowd? They've deserted him. They're gone. Scholars think that a number of them are actually there when people are yelling, crucify him at Jesus' arrest. You see, the crowd are guilty. They fail the standard of God's perfect holiness. The tax collector is guilty. And you know what? So are you and I. None of us can say we're without any wrong. We've all done wrong, thought wrong, desired wrong. In the words of the gospel, we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all guilty. We all need God's grace. The real question is, do we acknowledge our need? Therefore, wherever you are in your journey of faith, I ask you to consider, am I someone who realizes my need for the grace of God because grace comes to the guilty who know they're guilty. And if you don't acknowledge it, you don't get it. But if you do, it doesn't matter how guilty you are. His grace is infinite for you. My grace is for the guilty who grasp their guilt. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to bring grace to sinners who get that they're guilty. Grace we all need. Grace Jesus has. Grace his church should give. Therefore, 
As a church, we are called to give God's grace to all the guilty who acknowledge their need, even the powerful and the wealthy. I was uh, talking to somebody who went to our church and said, now that you've moved into an area that has a lot of people experiencing homelessness and broken around people in the margins, are we going to become a church focused on them? And I said, we're going to be a church focused on the people who live in the heart of the city. And that includes the people you just mentioned. There's five, six, eight thousand of them. We will not forget them. We spoke about it last week. But there's hundreds of thousands, even millions of people who aren't them, who have more money, but are equally hungry and thirsty and needy. And God's grace is for them too. Bring your sin to Jesus because his grace is for the guilty who know it. Secondly, leave your sin with Jesus. It says here that in verse 6, it says that the he... Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him, Jesus, joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Just talked about that. But now look at what Zacchaeus does. As he dines with Zacchaeus, we don't hear Jesus saying anything, but we hear Zacchaeus, Jesus saying anything to Zacchaeus until Zacchaeus speaks. Look what he says. Zacchaeus stood And said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The mere presence of Jesus, Luke seems to be saying, has this effect. The love that he's expressing, the grace that he's pouring out, melts Zacchaeus' heart and satisfies his soul in ways that money never could and money never did. And you know what it does? It frees him from functional slavery to money. Look what he says. Half of my wealth I give to the poor. He's got the other half. And I will repay, give restitution. That's a a typical Jewish way in the Old Testament of, of, of dealing with economic crime. I will repay fourfold. That's more than the Old Testament requires. Anyone who has defrauded me, this man with a, an overflow of a changed heart is saying, I'm giving half to the poor and whatever is left, I will defraud. I mean, I will pay back anyone who's been defrauded. Now, an original reader knows or expects that almost everyone who's, who's given taxes has been somewhat defrauded. So this is a staggering claim in its context. He is literally putting the other half he has left on the table and saying, I might have to pay all of it up in restitution. He's literally saying, I'm willing to give it all up. And so scholars have noted that this moment is a direct contrast to Jesus encountering the rich young ruler a chapter earlier in Luke 18 where he met the rich young ruler. He seemed to be very moral, very well-loved by the crowd, by the way, very different from this Zacchaeus fellow. He talks to Jesus, wants to follow him, wants to know the kingdom, and Jesus says, have you obeyed these commandments? And he says, I've obeyed them all. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the rich young ruler looked at Jesus and then he thought of his wealth 
and he blinked. And he walked away. Because he loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus. Zacchaeus looked at Jesus and he thought of his wealth. And he repented. And he gave up his wealth and his need for it. In this astonishing moment of freedom, Zacchaeus gives us the understanding of true faith. Jesus says, salvation has come to this son of Abraham. Son of Abraham means true child of faith in me. Faith here has been proven. How? Because it's been accompanied by repentance. Zacchaeus has turned away from his functional God, his money, the thing he was relying upon, the thing he gave his life for, and he's turning away from it to Jesus. This is what it means to have true faith, that Jesus becomes your greatest treasure, that Jesus becomes your greatest priority. He's more precious to you than anything else. It means turning away from our selfish desires, our greeds, our functional gods. You see, we all have those functional gods, something that tempts you, something that says, if, you're central, you're, if you'll center your life around me, I will make you feel whole. I will make you feel complete. I will make you feel alive. For me, it was respect. Respect governed the choices I made for what degree I took, what profession I went into, the way I comported myself behaviorally. I became impenetrable. You didn't want to cross me. So don't dare try and humiliate me. Humiliation was my functional hell. Respect was my savior. And I bent my life to it and I let it shape me. Money was doing that to Zacchaeus. What's tempting you to allow it to shape you? What has its grips on your soul? What is beginning to suck the energy and the dreams, take control of your schedule and your fears and your desires? What is becoming a guiding principle, a north star to you? Like many people in our city, it could be your career, but it could be your kids. It could be your relationships. It could be respect or status. But there's always something, no matter where you are in your journey of faith, there's always something you are tempted to allow yourself to be centered in, to allow yourself to say, this will define me. If I do well at this, I feel great. If I don't, I feel disconsolate. And it warps you into its image. Listen to David Foster Wallace, award-winning poet and author. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, he says, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. You hear him? These false gods shape you into their mold. And then Jesus comes, and he sits with us. And he says, I give you my grace 
for your guilt. And seeing Jesus in his infinite love and forgiveness like Zacchaeus, we finally realize what our soul has been craving and we bring Jesus in. And we ask him into our lives and he begins to change us and free us and those things no longer have their hold on us because a better affection has replaced them. And Zacchaeus can say, he freed me from my slavery to money, so I'm willing to give it away. And God said to me, you don't need to be a slave to your reputation. Let's break those handcuffs. And slowly, surely, he's been doing it for me. And for millions and billions of people throughout history, he's been doing this. He's saying, leave your sin with me because I want to give you my freedom. One of my preaching professors in seminary uh, used to go, um, pastor a fairly large church in South Florida. His congregation came from Miami and the suburbs. One of the people who came to his church was a new convert. He'd been a Christian about a year and a half. His job was to work the door at strip clubs. He was kind of a big guy, and that's what he did. He was kind of a bouncer. He was also a bodyguard. He would escort the, the, the really famous dancers, the in-demand ones from the hotels they were booked into, into the strip clubs that they were dancing at, and then back to keep them safe. He loved the scene. He loved the free drinks. He loved the sexual pleasure. And then it left him empty. And so he stumbled into church, and he found Jesus. And then his life was radically changed. He didn't give up his job, though. He just gave up the way he did his job. He began to be gracious and kind. So about a year or two after he had become a Christian, some really high-end, very famous dancers apparently were booked into his club that he worked for, and he was really gracious. He drove them back and forth all week. He never hit on them. He never grabbed them. He never did anything but be a gentleman to them. And so on the last night, as he was driving them home to the hotel, they were like, we've never seen anything like this. So we'd like to thank you for your kindness and great Uh, and how great you've been to us. As a thank you, do you want to come up to our suite for a nightcap? He said, ladies, you are all so beautiful. And a few years ago, it would have been my dream to say yes. But I met Jesus just over a year ago. And as much as I would love to come up with you, now I love Jesus just a little bit more. He's free. He can turn from his false God, which was the center of his life, to the true God that feeds his soul truly. You and me, we need to take our sin and leave it with Jesus because our sin isn't something fun to play around with. Our sin isn't something that someone thinks is wrong and therefore we should dutifully just suck it up and not do. Our sin isn't something we should be really proud that we have the control and the spiritual discipline to deny. All of those views we have because we essentially see sin as harmless and fun, just someone thinks it's wrong, named God. No. Sin is not only a huge treasonous offense against God, it's a toxic cancer to you. It gets into you without you knowing. It takes over you without you even recognizing. And it captures 
your soul and suddenly you are its slave. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus meets us wherever we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He takes the guilt of our sin and gives us grace. And then he takes the power of our sin and gives us freedom if we're willing to leave our sin with him. Are we? Grace Toronto. We need to be a safe place for people to come with even their deepest sins and say there's grace for you. We need to be a safe place for grace in the heart of a city that shows very little grace. But we also need to be a place for repentance for people who want to be right with God. We should be a place that it's a bit uncomfortable to just stay and nurse your idols and your sin. Martin Luther started the Reformation by nailing 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the first thesis said, amongst other things, all of life is to be marked by repentance. That's what maturity in Christ means, being willing to change If you're stuck in porn and unwilling to change, if if money has a hold on you and you're not willing to get free from it, if your career means too much or your kids mean too much or whatever means too much, your reputation and you don't want to change, we should be a place that challenges you. And I challenge you now, leave that sin with Jesus. Why? Because he died for it. And he rose for it. And he sent his spirit into you to free you from it. He didn't just die to cancel the debt and the moral guilt of your sin. He died to break the power and the enslaving nature of sin in your life. It was for freedom that Christ died and rose to set you free. How do we get there? How did Jesus fuel repentance from the inside of Zacchaeus? Did he clobber him with guilt? No. He melted him with love. He went to his house and ate his food. Jesus doesn't want you to leave your sin by clobbering you with guilt. He sends his spirit into your life and sends his love into the depths of your heart and he wants to melt it. That's the gospel. Jesus died to show how toxic sin was. It took the Son of God to die for it. He rose to show how enslaving sin is. It literally takes a new you, born anew, to be able to break free from the shackles of it. And he showed how tempting and alluring sin was by sending his most beautiful spirit in to lure you into his love. Applications. Firstly, if there's someone that you're thinking of who's so despicable that you think they can never accept God or be accepted by God, I want you to say, how are they like Zacchaeus? How empty are they? Do you think wealth satisfies Has it satisfied you? No. It doesn't 
satisfy them. Ask God to give you compassion to pray for those, even those who are rich and exploitive. Think about the wealthy and powerful around you that you know that might intimidate you or cause resentment in you. Learn to pray for them and see them with the eyes and and have compassion on them with the heart of Jesus. Ask the Spirit to do that for you. And then, as you pray, ask God to give you an opportunity to express Jesus to them. Secondly, in our meetings together, in our small groups, or wherever we meet, make those places a safe place to confess sin and a good place to repent of sin. A safe place to bring our sin to Jesus and a good place to leave our sin with him. Make our small groups like that. Make our meetings not just socially vibrant, but spiritually vibrant moments where we give freedom and grace. And finally, take a moment. There's toxic waste in your system now called sin. Why don't we take the garbage out? Ask God to remove it and to free you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that you died to cover the guilt of our sin, but you rose to break the power of our sin and you sent the Spirit to help us experience your love that we may have the joy as well as the power and the freedom to leave our sin. I pray for anyone who's here who's investigating the faith that they might see how beautiful you are and that they might ask you into their life the way Zacchaeus asked Jesus into his home. And I pray that you would give them the grace that their soul has been craving all of these days. And I pray for those of us who are Christians, we need that same grace. Help us to come and admit our guilt to you and receive the grace that you offer so freely. But help us to leave our sin with you and stop playing with it and thinking it's great, but understand how cancerous it is. You died for it. You rose for it. It's that serious. Help us to be a church that opens our arms to the guilty, no matter how powerful or exploitive, no matter how broken or marginalized that we're a safe place to admit your sin and we're a good place to leave your sin. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Got a couple of questions here. Uh, Oh my gosh, these questions are going to kill me. They are so good. Okay, what happens when you feel like a doormat within within the church? We, We love them and speak to them. Yet the situation does not change. Yeah, this came up in, in the last um, Q&A uh, this morning. Um, you're not called to be a doormat. You're called to love people. Um, and so what I mean by that is... Um, sorry, I've got a little vertigo. What, what, what we mean by that is when you love somebody and they're breaking boundaries, it's, it's not good for them or you. And you let that happen, you're enabling them to be poorer and more corrupted in their own character. And so love has boundaries. 
Love invades people who are being selfish and, and helps them see their selfishness and helps them be freed from selfishness. So you're not called to be a doormat. The ethic is, how do I love this person? And sometimes love means to intervene. Sometimes love means to say no. Sometimes love means to rebuke or exhort. Sometimes love means to encourage. Somehow we have gotten the impression in North American Christianity that to love someone is just to always be nice and never confront. That's not love. That's spoiling. You've ever seen a child that's never been confronted and spoiled? You know what it does to them. That's not loving them. Great question. Um, as a Christian, I do continue to have intense fear of failure to a certain degree. I do believe it depends on what God has gifted me. I, I think I need to work really hard. Is that wrong? Oh, no, it's not, it's not wrong. We, same questions came up. These are identical. It's amazing. Slightly differently phrased. But I want to say this about ambition. There's something wrong with being ambitious or excelling or doing well at your work or wanting to rise. The question is why? Whose glory are you trying to promote? by this striving for excellence and moving up the, ch- up the ladder. That's the question. It's who you're trying to glorify in your ambition. I think you should have tremendous ambition. I think you should excel in whatever you're called to do for the ambition of glorifying Jesus and showing the beauty of him and, and bearing public witness for him. Absolutely, we should all be rising to the top. We should be rising for the top to glorify him. And so I say, don't, don't lose your ambition. Focus it for the right purposes. Great, great question. Any thoughts on Kanye West? (laughs) Uh, Many. I have many thoughts on Kanye West. I'm not sure how it applies to the sermon. Uh, uh, Maybe he's a great sinner, and so his guilt and his grace is what you're you're after there. I'm just so pleased. Uh, The last... last, uh, service, they asked me, what, you know, thoughts on should, how do we pray for Donald Trump? <laughs> the same thing. I don't care how powerful you are, you need Jesus. I don't care how despicable you are, you're not beyond the grace of Jesus. So I love that Kanye West has become a Christian, um, and I'll leave it there. Okay, a uh, bunch more questions coming, and I'll, I'll finish uh, this. Oh my gosh, three more just came in. Guys, stop it, stop it. Uh, How do you uh, balance the free offer from grace, not dependent on our work, with examples of repentance? Like Zacchaeus. Okay. Uh, Well, such a good question. Such a good question. So many good questions, guys. Okay, just stop. How do I create boundaries between my... Stop. Uh, mm, uh, We'll do do a faith and work boundaries uh, seminar for you. We clearly need something. Um, faith is all you need to attract the compassion and love of Jesus but the faith that God gives you to believe in Jesus is a faith that wants to come to Jesus both for forgiveness and for freedom if all you want from Jesus is forgiveness so you can continue to be completely self-absorbed and follow your functional gods, you don't have actual faith. You're just looking for an insurance policy. Jesus isn't an insurance policy. He's the Lord of history who made and created the universe, who comes to you and says, give me your sin and I will pay for it. Give me your life and I will redeem it. He comes to you as Lord and Savior or he does not come to you at all. 
And so if you're coming to Jesus simply for forgiveness, but not also for freedom from your own self-absorption and selfishness, you don't understand him and you're not actually coming to him. You're coming to a distorted view of him because he comes to you and he says, give me your sin and now give me your life. And you can't have one without the other. And now we're going to go to the Lord's table where he exemplified why. Because you know what Jesus did? He came for our sin. And he gave us his life. Jesus came and the night that he was betrayed, he broke bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. By which he meant, I will give you my life for the forgiveness and freedom from sin. But I want yours. A little while later, he held up a cup cup of wine and he said this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood do this in memory of me by which he meant he would pour out his blood to pay the debt that you owe to God by your sin he will become a curse for you but he will do something else he will purchase your freedom from sin so that you can come to him wholeheartedly but the Lord of glory who became the suffering servant and the scapegoat for your sin. Never stop being the Lord of glory who deserves all of your honor, all of your obedience, all of your love. And he only comes as all of that to you. And so now as we come to the table to eat and drink of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, let us understand this fully orbed understanding of what it means to come to the God of grace who wants grace to go so deeply that it radically transforms us and is accompanied by repentance. He gave us his life. He calls for ours. I'm going to ask, I'm going to pray, and after I've prayed, the Lord's table will be sent around for us to participate and to remember the death of Christ for us. But let us use it to take the garbage out to repent of our sin and renew ourselves in saying you are my Lord and you are my King as well as my Redeemer. Let us pray. After I've prayed, the elements will be passed around. The bread is gluten-free. The wine is darker than the grape juice. Take it, eat it, and drink it as it comes by in your own individual timing. Father, I thank you and praise you. And I ask now that you would come as Lord of grace and that we would give to you our lives, that we would be willing to both accept your grace and flee from our own false gods and sin. Help us now to be refreshed in your grace and to be refreshed in our repentance. What a joy it is to be free from our selfishness and sin. Give us the joy of freely, joyfully, like Zacchaeus, giving to you all that you give to us. We give you our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open.